everyone has this experience of taking with you to your American classroom, a lunch with the food that your mother or father packed for you and having your friends exclaim over how different your food is. That happened to me pretty consistently until I just basically learned to take peanut butter sandwiches with me to school just to make my life easier. And welcome to the Alien Chronicles. I'm your host, Sadia Khan. This podcast features immigrant experiences. My goal through this podcast is to create a better understanding of immigrants living in the U.S. Because in today's polarized environment, immigrants are probably targeted the most. Having said that, I am not interviewing an immigrant today. But she can totally relate to the experiences of one because her parents are immigrants. Susan Mahdi Daraj is a Palestinian-American. She is an associate professor of English at Hartford Community College in Maryland. Susan is also a lecturer in the John Hopkins University's MA in the Writing program. In 2014, her short story collection, A Curious Land, Stories from Home, won several awards and accolades. Her previous short story collection, The Inheritance of Exile, was published in 2007, and it is a compilation of stories about daughters born in the U.S. and their immigrant mothers. In January 2020, Capstone Books will launch her debut children's chapter book series, Farah Rocks, about a smart, brave Palestinian-American girl named Farah Hajar. How do I know, Susan? I met her on Twitter. She is credited with starting the hashtag TweetYourTho. For those listeners who don't know, when Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, she's a Palestinian-American, by the way, was sworn into Congress, she decided to wear her thobe to her swearing in. Thobe is a traditional Palestinian rope. Women started sharing their own thobes on social media, and Susan initiated this trend. We will talk to Susan about this and a lot more, especially her experiences as a child of immigrants and how that has shaped her life. So let's jump right into it. Welcome, Susan. So happy to have you on my show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, uh, Susan, we'll start with your childhood. What was it like growing up in a household with immigrant parents and what are some of the influences growing up? It was rather challenging, I think, from the very beginning. I grew up speaking Arabic in my parents' home. And of course, when I started school, that was problematic. I had to quickly learn English and my parents could speak English, and but they thought that they were doing a good thing by promoting Arabic in the house. But uh, I quickly learned to um, speak English and promptly forgot most of my Arabic. So <laughs> there was always this kind of dilemma. I also realized as I was getting older that my American classmates and friends had a very distorted idea of what a Palestinian American family was like. They really misunderstood or did not really know. So in what ways did they misunderstand you or or your Palestinian background? Well, you know, in the 70s and 80s, the news was full of stories about the PLO and the tensions between Israel and Palestine. And so Palestinians in the media were pretty consistently depicted as terrorists. So this was the understanding that they had when they heard the word Palestinian. The other 
sort of problem I face is then if they didn't really know how Palestinians were being depicted as terrorists, the other problem is that they didn't know much about Palestinians whatsoever. And of course, as a Palestinian, my problem is that I cannot even show them on a map of the world where Palestine is because it doesn't exist on a map. So there was that problem as well. There was an issue of how to even explain an ethnicity, a culture, a nationality that most of the world did not recognize in the 70s and 80s. So that was really problematic. And I remember feeling that my Palestinian identity is problematic on so many levels. And I just, I always wish that people could just appreciate it for for what it was, it's, you know, a beautiful culture that I felt very comfortable in. But of course, that wasn't to be. So Susan, your name is Susan, your real name, but that's an American name. And uh, your parents gave you that name. Was that an attempt on their part to assimilate into American society? And what is your Palestinian name? Yes, they gave me the name Susan, absolutely, to help me assimilate to American society. My my Arabic name is Sosan. So a lot of my family calls me Sosan. It means the same thing that Susan means in Arabic. It means Lily. You know, I, I understand why they did that. And I've probably have felt that having two names is very symbolic for the way I grew up because I really felt like I had two identities. There was the American Susan who went to school with her American friends. And then there was the Sosan at home with her family who was different as well. So the, the dual names is actually quite fitting for, for my experiences growing up here. So in what ways did you have dual identity? Can you give us an example? Well, I'll, the most basic example any child of immigrants can give you is the food that they take to school for lunch. You know, everyone has this experience of taking with you to your American classroom, you know, to your American school, a lunch with the food that your mother or father packed for you and having your friends exclaim over how different your food is. That happened to me pretty consistently until I just basically learned to take peanut butter sandwiches with me to school just to make my life easier. It's not easy to be the focus of attention all the time. You know, I think that children of immigrants are just tired of constantly explaining everything. It's kind of a burden to be everyone's focal point for education. You know, if people want to know something about your culture, they have to come to you for it. And that, that becomes quite a burden sometimes. You feel like you spend half your life explaining and discussing things for the benefit of others. So, yeah, I, I, just, did, I just didn't want to bother. I just wanted to eat my lunch peacefully without having people talk about what I was eating. And that's a very basic example. You know, other examples include having American friends come to my home and, and hearing my parents speak in Arabic. I think sometimes I would feel embarrassed by that. And I remember asking my parents to speak only in English, which they could, they speak, they spoke English very well. But I realized later that I was putting a burden on them to like almost perform for my friends, like not to be themselves, right? Susan, things that you're pointing out, I can so relate to all of that, not as a child of immigrants, but as an immigrant mother. And I've seen that with my daughters. They are fairly young right now, but I, I see all of that. I see being embarrassed at times or having to defend 
their parents' culture to some extent or where their parents came from. And it is a constant struggle for kids. And especially, I think, second generation, it may be get better uh, for subsequent generations. But I have seen those struggles at home. So all of this, all these experiences that you're um, talking about, how did all of this inform your worldview? How do you approach issues given all that you've been through and and the kind of upbringing and and the struggles and frustrations you've been through as a a child of immigrants? I think it's made me a very... I hope it's made me a more empathetic person and also a person who is very accepting and not judgmental of other people. I truly believe that living in this, like, you know, they call it a third space, you know, when you're sort of living between two different cultures and your life is shaped by both cultures. I feel like that experience has given me an interesting perspective in that I can appreciate both cultures, but I can also be critical of both cultures. I can see in a more objective way things that I dislike about my American culture and my Palestinian culture. Again, I feel like I can be more empathetic to others. The the other thing it's done for me is I, I think it's made me much more of an activist and an educator. You know, I've sort of been place in this position where I'm forced to educate people all the time. Because for most people that I knew growing up, I was the only Arab American person that they knew. And that, that is that is a burden. But it's it's as I get older I realize it's also a privilege to be that person in some ways, right? Because I can really change someone's perspective on on the world if I am patient and I take my time and I indulge their questions. Yeah. So I mentioned in my intro that you started the hashtag tweet your thope. What was the motivation behind starting this? And did you think it would get the kind of response it did? Uh, was it in some ways reinforcement of your dual identity or dual cultures? It was in mid-December 2018. I, I read an article or I think it was an Instagram post that was made by Rashida Tlaib. She was the Palestinian-American woman elected to the House of Representatives. And she posted a picture of a thobe, a Palestinian dress, and announced that she was going to wear it to her swearing-in ceremony on January 3rd. And Palestinian thobes are, they're gorgeous dresses. Most Palestinian women I know have them. They're often made by the women in our family in our families and they are very personal dresses and they're, we wear them to formal occasions. So to me, it seemed perfectly normal that she would wear this dress. I think the dress was made for her by her mother, was hand stitched by her mother. When I went on Twitter, as well as Instagram, I was pretty stunned by the backlash that she was getting from American people. So the most consistent criticism that she received was that Wearing this dress somehow made her a traitor to American people, that wearing this dress made her signal that she was allied or devoted more to Palestinian issues than to American issues. Some people said it was a betrayal of the people who voted for her. Some people said it was an insult to the American military for her to wear a Palestinian dress. If you can imagine how illogical 
and grasping some of these accusations are. Some people also put, posted like quite racist pictures of shadors and niqabs, you know, saying that this is what typical Palestinian American women wear. Again, you know, there's always this feeling among uh, Americans that Palestinian women are somehow oppressed and victimized by Palestinian men. So to them, the hijab or any kind of head covering is like a signal of oppression. It's a very simplistic reading of head coverings, but people were posting pictures like that and saying, this is more typically what Palestinian American women wear as if, as if they know. So, you know, that was really outrageous to me, but again, I, you know, I've, I've been asked some rather insulting questions throughout my life about Palestinian culture. So I shouldn't have been surprised. And I've had friends ask me when I mentioned my family, oh, is your mother allowed out of the house? Does your father dictate everything in the house? And they would ask me these questions with a straight face. You know, they assumed that I was raised in a home where my mother was silent and submissive. And my father was sort of like a dominating personality. But, but you know, I, I was like reading some of this, you know, feedback that Rashida Tlaib was receiving. And I thought, you know, if, if there's a moment for education, it's this moment. So I decided that I would do something. I would, I would invite women in the Palestinian diaspora all around the world on that day, celebrate with Rashida Tlaib by posting pictures of themselves wearing those at their special events, you know, like at weddings or graduations and that sort of thing. And there were thousands of postings on that day. I mean, it went viral. We did it for three days and the coverage was tremendous. I didn't think it would get that much coverage, but when the New York Times called me around noon that day on January 3rd, I was like, okay, this is, this is bigger than I expected. So <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. And I think, I think it sort of normalized the idea of the thobe. You know, it kind of showed people that, you know, this is a beautiful culture and that her wearing the thobe is really more about her relationship with her mother than anything else. So, uh, you know, it, it seems to have had a positive effect on the conversation about Palestinians in America. And like people like me who didn't know about Thobe, we got to see this beautiful dress, like so many women wearing it and, and sharing it on Twitter. Moving on to your book, Susan, The Inheritance of Exile, which again is, um, it features stories of daughters and their immigrant mothers. What I've seen with my kids and learned from others is that children of immigrant parents, they always find, and you've said that, they always find it difficult to carve their own space as Americans. I mean, my daughter once said to me that she feels she's too ethnic for kids at her school, but when she visits Pakistan, she's too American for them. Yes, I understand that feeling. <laughs> yeah. So how much have your ex childhood experiences shaped this book? And what are some of the revelations about dynamic between immigrant mothers and their daughters in this book? Well, that book was very special to me. When, when, when I wrote it, I originally wrote simply the stories of, I wrote several stories from the perspectives of daughters of immigrants. And I, I included themes such as feeling uncomfortable, feeling that you're in that third space, not being understood by your mother, 
feeling embarrassed in front of your American friends. I also included stories of women who traveled back to Palestine, expecting to feel immediately at home, given their experience in America, but of course being disappointed because in Palestine they're treated like Americans. But then as I was writing those stories, I I felt like I was really doing a disservice to the voices of the mothers, that I really had to try to include the voices of the mothers of these women. So I paired up each story of a daughter with the perspective of her mother. So there were stories that were complementary in that sense. And that really was interesting for me because, again, I think growing up as the daughter of immigrants has made me, as I said, very empathetic. I feel like I can really put myself in the shoes of other people, but putting myself in the shoes of Palestinian immigrant mothers was really eye-opening for me just to imagine the things that they must have experienced and struggled with. There's a story of a, of a mother who feels like her daughter is growing up, but growing away from her. Like she, the daughter feels embarrassed by her, but she also feels horrible about that. She doesn't want to be an embarrassment to her daughter, but she doesn't know any other way to be. And she's trying so hard to be enough for her daughter. Putting myself in that perspective was humbling for me to imagine what these, what women like that have experienced. And from immigrant mother's perspective, What I've seen through my experiences is that kids, they don't understand or they cannot relate to the struggle that mothers go through. And on the surface, we we try to integrate and we feel that we are pretty assimilated into society and all. But then there is some part of our culture or tradition that we want to hold on to, whether it manifests itself in language or traditions. And that's where the struggle starts, because then we want to pass it on to our kids as well, especially our daughters. And that's where it gets a bit, I think, frustrating for them to understand and for us to see how or why they would be resistant to the idea. And what I've seen is that eventually, and I'm sure um, you can talk about this much more because my kids are still very young. Eventually, I think um, daughters reconcile, but I think it's initial years where they struggle the most. I agree. And I, you know, for me, my parents arrived in the United States in 1967 and I was born in the mid seventies. And people forget that that's the time that they started to display the pictures of missing children on milk cartons. Okay. And there were many tumultuous events being reported on the news. And I think for newly arrived people who are raising children, it must have been a very terrifying time, you know? And so I feel like As a young girl, my parents were so restrictive, you know, like I felt like I had to really negotiate with them to be allowed to go out of the house and go somewhere and do something. I felt like they were always afraid that something would happen to me. Of course, now as a mother myself, you know, I... I'm surprised at the things I say to my own children. Be careful. Don't talk to this person. Don't do that. You know, make sure you call me. So, of course, I'm doing the same thing that my my parents were doing, but I'm much more comfortable with this culture. You know, my parents are comfortable with this culture now, but in the 70s, they were still rather new. 
So, yeah, I, I think, we you know, we have to, again, try to put ourselves in that experience to understand those feelings, like what people were struggling with at that time. And, and again, for my parents, it was also those were also the years when they were still becoming familiar with the language, with some of the cultural practices in America. So, you know, they tried hard to assimilate, but the early years are difficult for all immigrants. And I also believe that it's extremely important that for kids, there are these characters on TV or in, in literature, because then they also feel comfortable at home. And to that point, I'm very excited about your kids book series. Um, it features a Palestinian American girl, Farah. And it's high time we had more diverse representation, especially in children's literature. And I'm yes. so happy that you're contributing to that. Can you walk us through your thought process and what influenced you to do this? And what do, what are you expecting to achieve through this? Sure. Well, my daughter is just turned 13. She reads a lot. She's, a, she's an active reader. But a couple of years ago, she said to me in a moment of frustration, how come there aren't any books with Palestinian girls in them? And... When she said that to me, it made me pause. And I, I thought to myself, you know, I asked that same question when I was her age, because I grew up reading Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, Little House on the Prairie, lots of books. But I didn't see myself in that literature. And of course, we know that children's literature is so important. It acts, you know, the theory is that it acts as a mirror and a window. So it's important for children of color, for example, to see themselves, the mirror, they need to see themselves reflected in what they read. And it's also important for other children to see the lives of children who live, who live differently than they do. That's the window. So, you know, I grew up with a lot of windows in my reading, but not, not any mirrors. So I thought, you know, let me try to write a short book, you know, and, and my daughter was about 10 at that time. So I wrote it for like a 10 year old and I wrote it and I gave it to her and she was like, oh, this is wonderful. I love this book. And I said, you know, let me show it to my agent. So I showed it to my agent and he said, you know, this could be a series. Why don't you write a second one and let's see if we can find a publisher. So I wrote a second book and the project was picked up by Capstone Books, which is a terrific publisher. They actually have a very diverse book list already. And so I feel like the project is going to be very much at home with their, with their company. So they have contracted me to write four books. And the series uh, stars a girl named um, Farah Hajar. Her friends call her Farah Rocks. Hajar means rocks or stones in Arabic. And she has a lot of adventures. She's funny. She's very brave. She's very smart. She's extremely honest, which gets her into quite a bit of trouble sometimes. <laughs> but I'm very excited about her character because this is going to be the first chapter book series with a Palestinian girl as the star. And I'm excited that girls like my daughter will see themselves finally in a book like that. 
And that's that's extremely important because I think, again, we need representation. We need diversity on TV as well, in books, on TV, everywhere, so that not only do people feel comfortable who are immigrants or children of immigrants, but also people around them in society feel comfortable and they don't form these stereotypes. You are not an immigrant. You actually are a child of immigrants. So I want to see what, how you perceive America through lens of second generation. So how would you describe America in one word? America is confused. That's the word I'm going to use. America doesn't know its own history. And what I mean by that is we do not really understand the struggles of people throughout the history, throughout this country's history. You know, school children learn the stories of the pilgrims. We learned about, they learn about Christopher Columbus. They learn these like mythologized versions of, of history. And I think if children learned about the genocide of Native Americans, for example, because of people like Columbus, if children learned about what slavery was really like, you know, history books for children do not really tell you about what slaves endured for 400 years in this country. They don't really tell you those things. And maybe it's because they're afraid to upset young readers, but, but children need to know this stuff. They need to understand that the American dream has not always been accessible for all Americans. And I think if they knew that, if they understood that, they would be better able to empathize or better able to cope with the fact that, you know, America as a country is changing. It would make people feel more at ease with the fact that America is becoming a country in which minority groups, their populations are growing. As a recent example, you know, Colin Kaepernick, his experiences with the NFL and the backlash against him for simply kneeling during the national anthem, the kind of backlash he received to me is a very uninformed backlash because I think people don't really understand the struggles of African-Americans in this country because they don't know the history behind it. So it's a confused country in the sense that we don't really know our own legacy. And if you don't know your history, you're not going to be able to cope with the present or the future. So yes, I'll stick with the word confused. As you said, it's extremely important to to reconcile with history. And sometimes I feel like when I see these incidents on TV and the one that you mentioned, I feel like this is very telling of current times as well, like what's happening politically or socially. And I think, as you pointed out, America seems a lot more confused to me now than it was even, say, 10 years ago or like 13 years ago, which is which is strange. But it seems like America is struggling with its identity a lot more these days. And for that, you're right that there has to be a reference point where people understand what what is in the past. Do you think it's also reg- like region specific? when uh, what's taught in history books, for instance, what's taught in Northeast may be different than what's taught somewhere else, or is it the uniform across the country? I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I, I'll tell you like another way that I think people are confused is, is when it comes to the issues of working class people. I mean, working class people in this country have suffered 
for years and years as an effect of globalization and other forces. But but our our modern culture really dismisses and misrepresents working class people and poor people. Since the age of television, they've been displayed as, you know, buffoons or people to be laughed at. I, for example, on TV, I watch like these terrible shows, like these pseudo court shows where, you know, this fake judge will issue like, you know, sentences to people to solve their problems. And they're, they're always poor people, you know, before the, the, the court, so to speak. And it's really a show where it allows Americans to kind of laugh at poor people. So I think that working class and poor people have really been struggling in this country for a long time, but we have in place right now a culture that dismisses them. And then we also have a government that is sort of redirecting their frustration against other groups, against people of color and against immigrants. So that's a huge problem. That's a huge problem that I think that is a problem that is not regional. That's a national problem. The only, the only solution we have is education. You know, people have to be educated about their own history and, and they have to be uh, encouraged to, to be more empathetic towards other groups of people. And they should do their own research. I think there is too much dependence on media. People just think that they can glean off all, like, all the information that they get from media. They just believe that, whatever the source. I think it's extremely important that they do their own research and see where the truth lies. And then they can make their own judgments based on that. Susan, moving on, if you could change one thing about America, what would that be? <laughs> the way history is taught. I'll, I'll stick to my... My, my core issue here, we really need to radically revise, you know, the curriculum. We need to encourage more reading. We need to encourage better texts, better curricula, history curricula for, for younger students. By the time they're in high school, it's too late. You know, we need to start with them when they're in elementary and middle school. We need to get rid of this whole story of Columbus discovering America and all this sort of thing. And we need to include the histories of many different groups of American people. And we need to introduce that into the into the curriculum when they're very young. Yeah. So before we end that interview, I would like to ask you some fun questions. This is my rapid fire round. So just getting to know you um, better. We'll start with uh, reading books or listening to music. Reading books. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? <laughs> Peanut butter sandwiches. No jelly. If you could only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? Can I say my three children? Absolutely. Children. <laughs> okay, I'll take them. Name three things on your bucket list. I'd like to go to Paris. Never been. I'd like to write at least a couple more novels. And I'd like to learn to play a musical instrument. And if you could have any superpower, what would that be? The power of invisibility. So I can spy on people and hear what they really think. <laughs> I, I just feel if I had that and if I spied on people, I would be so disappointed. I don't know. I just feel like there are things that I don't even want to know about other people. But then, you, but then you'd really know what they think. You yeah. know, people are good at performing. So this way you could really find out what, they're, what they feel about you. That's true. Your biggest <laughs> failure? I never finished my PhD. 
So I'll maybe that I think. And your biggest achievement? My biggest achievement, I think, is the books that I've that I've written, the body of literature that I've created. Describe yourself in three words. Funny, compassionate, and generous. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? I was told once that people have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should listen twice as much as we speak. Yeah. Your idea of vacation? Somewhere quiet with lots of books to read and some wine. <laughs> Best Palestinian restaurant? In Baltimore, there's a place called Zatar on Charles Street in Baltimore. It's fantastic. Your favorite emoji? The one where the, the laughing so hard that they're crying, that one. Tea or coffee? Coffee. And home is? Home is wherever my children are, I think. Palestinians are good at adapting so wherever they go, I'll feel at home. Thank you so much, Susan, for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I would also like to thank all the listeners for joining us today. You can check us on our website at alienchroniclespod.com. We have an email address as well, info at alienchroniclespod.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at chroniclesalien. And you can find us on Instagram at the Alien Chronicles. Please stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. <laughs>